The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. You may be seated and turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Genesis and chapter 1. Book of Genesis and chapter 1. So we have now for a couple of months have um, been absent from our Sunday night series on uh, foundations from Genesis, that is, understanding God's blueprint of life in biblical perspective, using the book of Genesis for the framing pieces of it by examining creation sanctities. Now, if I... And it's just us here tonight. <laughs> it's wonderful to be with you. I was kidding with some of the folks over here. Uh, go ahead and meet everybody here tonight and shake hands because this is the elect that collected. And praise the Lord. You can pretty well be assured the people you meet here, you're going to meet in heaven. Not because they're here, but because they know Jesus and Sunday nights are important even in these days and these difficulties. But do please be in prayer for the many, many folks who have uh, succumbed to this wave of the flu and the COVID Omicron. We'll love each other well by the, uh, by the fact that we will, um, guys, I left the, I left my microphone, so I'll just stay, I'll just stay right here tonight, okay? It'll be hard, but I'll do my best. Um, and so, um, uh, so we want to love each other well as we uh, respond and take care of each other through this uh, uh, through this uh, uh, sweeping movement right now. And let's pray for the Lord to be a, the Lord to do His work in us that we'd be able to serve Him uh, unhindered and effectively, even as we learn through difficulties. You know, when you suffer, there's one of two things that happen. One is that you have pain and you succumb to it. And the other is, in the midst of suffering, it becomes a moment of growth in the Lord. And uh, even that includes physical suffering as well. So let's pray that God uses these days to grow us. Now let me say, I just want to do a little bit of pastoral explanation. As I said, not everyone's here tonight, not even of our normal Sunday evening gatherings and if there's any way you could talk people, share with people, if you think it's worthwhile that they listen to tonight. Now, tonight I want to not only lay out our reintroduction back into this series, the foundations of the faith, by looking at God's blueprint from the book of Genesis and, um, and put these framing pieces of a Christian world and life view. I want to explain a little bit about why I believe this is important and why we are doing it. I believe we're in a challenging moment in the culture with the cultural revolutions that are going on. 
And I believe that we're in a challenging moment, not in the nominal church, the Christian church, not even in the liberal, quote unquote, liberal Christian church, but even within the evangelical church and its tentacles of challenge are working into beloved denominations that I serve alongside and my own. And that's why I have taken a course of ministry uh, in agreement with and under the guidance of our elders. Uh, it was no accident why we did this series on First Peter. I believe Peter gives the paradigm of how God's people live for him on mission, on message, and in ministry in a pagan world. What to expect and how to respond. And that's why we did those 28 sermons from the book of First Peter, the letter of First Peter. And then I felt it was very crucial in these days that we understand Christianity 101. Thus, we did the series on the Apostles' Creed, the foundational doctrines of the faith. And that's why we then moved to what I believe is both the foundational epistle and the capstone epistle in our Bible, the book of Romans and the exposition of the primary doctrine, were, and that is the gospel of our God, that we are not to be ashamed of it and eager to preach it, and we need to know it in terms of life and how to bring life to others. So all of those have been chosen in light not only of what it is upon a heart of a pastor to be from the pulpit to pull the trigger on disciple-making in congregational communities and in small groups and in men's ministry and in women's ministry, but it, and uh, that those things, these things are very important. Um, but it's also there because... Uh, I believe that the challenging days are rapidly going to get more challenging. And what's going to be crucial is how you view what comes to you. How do you see it? How do you view it? Um, I remember when I was a kid and I was facing a, sur a possible surgery and how frightened I was until my dad and my mom sat down and explained to me why the surgery, what was going to happen, and how they would be there with me through it. I think the same thing's true in life. We know that the challenges are there. We get the sense of the raging of Satan against the bride of Christ, the woman of God, his bride, his covenant people. And we see what happens in the um, in the surrounding culture, the world, the flesh and the devil and what's going on. And the Bible tells us not to fear. And the Bible tells us to have peace. Now, part of that comes from the dynamic of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have the peace of God and peace with God through the gospel of peace and Christ, the Prince of Peace. But it's also because Christ helps us understand what we're facing. He helps us understand how we are to respond. He gives us what I like to call a world and life view. How do you see what's coming? Do you do, I'm not going to see it the way the world wants me to see it or the way my old man wants me to see it. I want to see it rightly. I want a biblical Christian world and life view.
Now, I'm going to take us back to the opening sermon for this series of foundations from the book of Genesis, God's blueprint for life to understand it. And that's this. Your life view is fed by your life love. And when your life love propels you and compels you to embrace a biblical life view, that will issue in a Christ-exalting lifestyle. The lifestyle is directed by the life view. The life view is embraced out of a love to Christ. In other words, I can preach on the Apostles' Creed. I can preach on the framing principles from Genesis. I can preach on the book of Romans. I can do all of that. But if someone is not compelled by the love of God in Christ, it is dismissed. It's not important. Oh, it may be a good talk to listen to every once in a while. Instead of a life preserver, a life-framing dynamic in life. This morning, we sang a hymn that we like to sing from time to time as a congregational affirmation after the benediction. That hymn means so much to me. That hymn means so much to me because uh, it determined my decision for college after I became a Christian and God called me to ministry. I was visiting colleges, Christian colleges, knowing I just needed uh, to get into God's Word um, and get the foundation before I went to seminary, before I went into ministry. And as I was visiting the college, I went to one. It was a, it was a shock for me because I'd been in a college and uh, been involved in the college that was uh, about 24,000 students. Now I stepped into a college that had 507. It was a, that was an interesting moment and feeling. I remember the lines I used to stand in, you know, to get classes. <laughs> well, Believe me, there were no lines to get into classes in the second semester. And as I went to the chapel, being the first chapel of the semester, they sang the college hymn, All for Jesus. And I just sensed the Lord saying to me, if what they're teaching in the classroom matches this hymn, this is where you need to be. All for Jesus. And in the singing, one of the great verses where we sing all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being, all my doings, all my ransom powers, all my thoughts, all my hours. A lifestyle from a life view. That's all from Jesus, all about Jesus, and all for Jesus. The day of living in this culture and adding a little Christian religion and a little Jesus, and it becomes an asset, is fleeting and really is already gone. To live for Jesus will require conviction, courage, and compassion. And you can't do it without knowing life through the lenses of God's word. If I was to pick up, if I was to pick up some glasses and put them on and look out at all of you, and those glasses 
their lenses were red. As I looked at you, what color through the glasses would I see when I looked at you? You would look like someone who had what kind of skin? This, this is not a trick question. Red. If I had on green glasses, you'd look green. If I had on blue glasses, you'd look blue. Whatever glasses I'm looking at is the way I'm going to respond and think of reality. It may or may not be accurate. It depends on the glasses. And in a Christian world and life view, what we are attempting to do by God's grace is to put the glasses of life on. Glasses that are Christ-centered. Every, every lens is focused. And the focus of the lenses for a Christian is Christ-centered. The preeminence of Christ in all things. All things. It is Christ-centered. It is biblically framed. The frames of these glasses is the Word of God and everything in it must fit in that frame. Everything in the glass, whatever the lenses are, they must come and be framed by God's Word. Which means it will be Christ-centered. Which means it will be Spirit-empowered. So we want biblically framed, Christ-centered prescription of the lenses. Spirit-empowered response to what we see. And a God-glorifying perspective in life. Basically, there are two worldviews. One is the self-centered worldview whereby we develop a culture of self the promotion of self, the absorption of self, the reliance upon self. Or we have a God-centered worldview that's Christ-focused, biblically framed, spirit-empowered, and God-glorifying. One of the two. Now, let me go ahead and tell you. The the self-centered, self-absorbed, self-reliant world and life view comes with all kinds of isms, materialism, scientism, uh, progressivism, secularism, humanism. It comes with all kinds of isms. What they've, got, it's, what they've got in common is everything is viewed in terms of me, of terms of the self. That's the way it is. Look, one guy quipped one time, one Baptist pastor I heard, he said, there's no accident that I is the middle letter of sin. It's all about us. That's the way we would look at it. But when you get saved and you get a new heart, now the love of Christ compels you. That becomes the life love. And that gives you a hunger for God's word. And you don't have to be, you don't have to have sermons marketed. You just got to preach faithful sermons because they're hungry for it. And then there is, and, 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 uh, and, and discipleship is embraced because you not only want a life love and a life view, you want to download it into a lifestyle. You not only want a life love from a new heart 
and a life view from the Word of God by the Spirit of God. But you want a lifestyle that gives glory to God that you might enjoy Him. So why did I go to Genesis and why are we going back to Genesis? Well, I went to Genesis because Genesis is a prime example and Genesis gives us what I've called for your life view, framing pieces. Cindy and I, when we were in Charlotte, uh, had the opportunity to purchase a piece of property that was so conducive for ministry, very near the church. And then we sat down and we said, okay, we want to build a house. And so we said, how are we going to build this house? Well, we are, we're going to create the form of the house, first determining what is our house supposed to do. What, what is the purpose of our house for us, our marriage, our family, and our ministry? And we laid out five things. Then we went to an architect, told him the things we like, but this is what the, this is the function. Now let's talk about the form. And that is exactly the way I think that we are to approach life. And then I went and saw this wonderful moment when they had the foundation laid, and that day they started putting up the framing studs, and the thing began to take shape. You see, so many of us, we don't want to take the time to put the framing pieces in place of our, we'd just love to, you know, maybe I can get the man, get somebody's phone number, somebody's book, and I'll let them do all the work in it. Well, yes, use people that teach, use books, use preachers, use disciples, use all of that. But use them for you to dig into the word, to put the framing pieces in place so that when you encounter something, you know how to view it. Now you know how to respond to it. So that is exactly what I think the book of Genesis does. Look at Genesis 1 for me. Let's just come back to this text that we have been in a number of times. And it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now we know from this text and attending text, we've got a Trinitarian God that the Father authors the creation, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit of God uh, hovers over it to bring order to it. But there's something here that automatically begins to speak to us of a world in life view. Notice, your Bible does not explain the origin of God or defend the reality of God. It reveals it and proclaims it. The Bible gives you the origin of space, time, matter, marriage, Life, children, family, gender. The Bible gives you the explanation of all those things. The book of Genesis is really ten books. If you want to find the ten books, as you read through the book of Genesis, look for this phrase. In the generations of. It's ten books explaining the origins of something in those ten books. 
And it opens with the origins of the heavens and the earth in chapter 2, verse 4, the first book after this preamble on the creation that we have in Genesis 1 through chapter 2 and verse 4. And what God does, God just affirms himself. And he begins to explain, now, where does everything else come from? And why is it here? And what is it that's crucial? So here's what we've done, just in case you've forgotten in the last two months. We have gone to the book of Genesis for uh, for five framing pieces. We have first of all seen the importance of the sanctity of divine revelation. God has revealed himself in creation, and God has revealed himself in his word. You start with God's divine revelation. Because you can't know God unless you know what God has given to reveal himself, who he is and what he does as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. He reveals himself in creation, and he reveals himself in his word. Both are infallible, but we are not infallible in our interpretation of them. But the last rule of faith and practice is the scripture whereby we know who God is and what does he do. And therefore, the magisterium of the Bible, the sanctity of divine revelation. And then, now we're ready to know who God is. Now we're ready to look at the second thing we looked at was the sanctity of God. That God himself is revealed in his word. The word of God reveals the God of the word. And then we move to the sanctity of creation. Why is the week of creation so important in a Christian world and life view? Which probably explains why it is so attacked in our world. So here is the sanctity of divine revelation, the sanctity of God, the sanctity of creation. Then number four that we looked at was the sanctity of man made in the image of God and his creation mandate to subdue the earth, to rule over the earth, and to have dominion over the earth. Then comes the fifth thing that we started into, the sanctity of gender. Now, there are nine sermons we've already done to to develop these five sanctities. And we're going to, next week, we're going to a sixth one. And I've purposefully chosen the sanctity of life next Sunday night, as that's this Sunday that we set aside to pray, confess our sins in this culture of death particularly the homicidal assault upon the preborn in our nation. So next Sunday night, we're going to look at the sanctity of life. And then after that, I want to come back to the sanctity of gender, and I want to spend some time, what does the Bible say biblical masculinity is? And what does the Bible say biblical femininity is? Biblical femininity is being distorted And biblical masculinity is being assaulted. But what does the Bible say about those two things? And that's where we will head on Sunday nights after that. Now, can I try to demonstrate to you why this is so important to me as a pastor, pulling the trigger on discipleship to get to you, and why I 
kind of want you to try to help me evangelize others as to the importance of this series of sermons. Um, I want you to go with me. I want to show you, I want to give you two exhibits in the moments that we've got left and let you see why life view is so important when you meet the challenges of life or the challenges that come in life to you as a Christian. Would you look with me in Matthew chapter 22? Would you go in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22? I want you to look at two events in the life of Christ as he is approaching uh, Calvary. Matthew chapter 22. There were a couple of groups that took aim at Jesus. One was the pragmatists. They were the Pharisees. And the other were the, the day's liberals. And that was the Sadducees. Now look at what the Pharisees did in this text. Look with me in Matthew chapter 22 and verse um, uh, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the, here's another group, the Herodians. They were the sellouts. And they were saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. (laughs) All of that's true, but I don't think they were truthful. I don't think they appreciated that, but they were right about that. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled, and then they left him and went away. Jesus responds as the uh, Son of Man, and what you see is, number one, he's aware of their nature. He knows their intention. He's fully aware of it, so he knows how to respond to it. This is not those who are his disciples looking for information about how to be in the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God at the same time. No, they were, they had malice aforethought, as we say. And as they had malice and they came to him, he then answers them and he answers them with a coin and he shows them the inscription of the coin and the inscription as well as the image of Caesar affirming the fact that God has ordained government and therefore God has ordained the taxes that God has ordained the government to issue in the context of this sphere of authority. But they then said, so then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then they marveled. It is my humble opinion that Jesus shows us the value of a Christian world and life view. And to have the doctrine of creation right. And the, doctor of, do, the doctrine of not only creation, but the doctrine of the sanctity of government right. Because when he answers them, he says to them, 
If his image is on it, then God has ordained that you respond and what is an appropriate tax, you pay it. But he's not only looking at sphere sovereignty from a biblical world in life view. He then says, you render this because Caesar's image is on it within the plan and sovereign providence of God. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render unto God the things that are God. Do you understand what he's just done? What he is telling them, you are asking questions to catch me. So I'll give you the world and life view appropriate understanding of the state and why we pay taxes in God's sovereign plans. But what you need to learn is you respond with obedience when the image is upon the money. Then give to God the things that are God's. Who bears God's image? You. You. And what he is telling them is God's calling you to surrender to him. You bear his image. And that's how and why you ought to respond to him. And they marveled. And that, and they left him. Well, there were some other guys standing around. There were the Sadducees. Let's take a look at them. The same way Sadducees came to him. Same way. They're doing, got the same idea and they do the same thing. They come to him and say to him, who, who say that there is no, uh, the Sadducees came to him. Who are the Sadducees? Those are the ones who say there is no resurrection. Of course, you know the joke. That's why they're sad, you see. And they ask him a question. <clears throat> they know Jesus teaches the resurrection. So they ask him a question. Okay, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. Okay, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, I can almost see their crooked smile at this moment. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? But they all had her. They all had intimacy with her. So whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And you cannot miss what Jesus says. This is why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. You cannot miss what he says. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. You're wrong in your view, you're wrong on this illustration, and you're wrong on the resurrection. And let me tell you why you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You've brought me an incident, but you don't know the power of God, and you don't know the scriptures. In the resurrection... They neither marry nor are giving in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when they knew, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. 
So now they also start marveling. He answers their question, how? You're wrong. You're wrong on your illustration and you're wrong about the resurrection. And the reason you're wrong is because of why so many Christians are letting the world make them frightened right now. Because you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. You're being catechized by the, catechized by cable news and social media more than the word of God. And therefore you don't know the scriptures and you don't know how to respond and you don't know the power of God. And then he answers, power of God, let me tell you, new heavens and new earth. When we get there, this whole thing of marriage is going to be subsumed by the power of God. And there will neither be marriage or giving in marriage. And believe me, that's not less than what you enjoy in your marriage. I don't know how he's going to work it out. I'll have to get there to see it. But I know it will be even better than what we have now. And how that is worked out. And then he says, as for the resurrection, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. How many, can I ask you a question? How many here believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient? Can I see your hand? Good. How many of you believe every single word by the original authors in the original manuscripts of the original languages is inspired, inerrant, and infallible? Can I see your hand? Well, almost all of you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He answers their question, and he tells them they're wrong because of one word. One very small word. He said, if you knew the scriptures, then you would know of your father Abraham. Look what he says in verse 22. I, what's the next word? Am. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Well, was Abraham dead? Yes. But though he dies, yet he lives. I am the resurrection and the life. He answers their questions and destroys their entire doctrine of being as Sadducees with one word, two letters, am. Not I was the God of Abraham and then he died. I am the God of Abraham and he is not the God of the dead, which tells you Abraham lives. That's the resurrection. I am the God. And you see, it's just knowing the word. And with a biblical world in life view, an entire movement and their, their, their foundational doctrine is wiped out. And the one little word in the Bible is am from one text. And so we begin to see the value of that Christian world and life view. Let me do one more thing, and then we'll close in prayer. Go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. 
When you get to Acts 17, we are aware of an incident in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. I really need to take time to read the text around it uh, for the context, but I'm just I'm not going to do that because of time and we'll be out on time. But I just um, I do commend to you the context. Let me ask you to go to Acts 17 and let me ask you to slip down in Acts chapter 17 uh, down with me. Uh, down to um, verse um, eight, uh, verse 16. Down to verse 16. Now watch what this says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now, who is he waiting for? He's waiting for Silas. He's waiting for, he's waiting for his team. And he's down at Athens getting a little bit of R&R, but there's not very much R&R with him. Uh, he just goes right back to work, even though he's supposed to be resting. And he left his, his team back up in Berea and Thessalonia in order to substantiate the solidification of those churches and get leadership in place. And But he is waiting for them at Athens. While he is there, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw the city was full of idols. So what does he do when he is provoked at idolatry? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he went to the Jews and then he went to the Gentiles. And he what? He reasoned with them from what? The scriptures. He assaulted and attacked, not with the anger of man, but with the truth of God's word, the issues of idolatry. Where am I going to find the Jews? Synagogue. I'll go find them. I'll reason with them there. Where am I going to find the Gentiles? Well, they're at the shopping mall. I'll go to the market. I'll go to the Agora. I'll find them there. And then he goes and he starts reasoning with them. And God's word does not return void. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So some are having some reasonable, rational conversations, particularly the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And others were just dismissing him. What does this babbler have to say? Then another group, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There was nothing more distasteful to the Greek culture than the resurrection. They were purely uh, uh, students of Plato. The, the spiritual is good. The physical is evil. The whole point is to get escape from the body, not to get it resurrected. So they did not want anything to do with that. And then they took him and brought him uh, to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring uh, some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, some of you have been with me, and we've done the uh, the the, um, the following the steps of Paul uh, tour, and I, we go to Athens, and up on the hill up there, of course, is the Parthenon, and then right down on another hill, right below it, is the place where the philosophers would gather, Areopagus, or the hill of the god Mars. 
And it is there that the philosophers would debate. And they would hear the new philosophers. And they would hear one another and debate one another. Well, these people have heard them, have heard Paul, and they've heard Paul in the synagogue, and they've heard Paul in the marketplace. So they say to him, come up and tell us all what you're saying. So Paul arrives at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. If he'll make you feel better, with no superstition, I have a rock from Mars Hill in my office. You can come hold it if you would like to. I try to hold it every Sunday, hoping something gets a hold of me that got a hold of Paul uh, when he was preaching there. But, of course, that's the Spirit of God that does this. What does the Spirit of God do with Paul? Here's what he does, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. By the way, don't don't miss this. He stands in their midst. That means they're sending him a message. We don't respect you. In those days, the teacher sat and the people stood. But he was standing. He got an invitation, but they clearly did not express any respect or reverence. So he's standing. And then he says to them, but he shows respect to them. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very, not just religious, you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, that means, yeah, your worshipers. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, agnostus, then I proclaim to you. Here he is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined our the word actually here I think the ESV is dodging this a little bit having predestined or ordained having predestined or ordained the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God that's their duty seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Here's general revelation that's revealing him, that they move toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, and now here he knows, you know, he knows that the, the philosophers are wrong, it's broken, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. So he gives two quotes from the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, idols, or silver, or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. How do we know God? Not by human imagination, but divine revelation. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which we will, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and uh, Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. As you go through what I just read, you've got a laundry list of what I'm trying to do in the book of Genesis. He drew from the book of Genesis in this event He brought a biblical world in life view. He affirmed the sanctity of divine revelation. You don't know God by human imagination, but divine revelation. The sanctity of divine revelation. He affirmed the sanctity of God. And in his affirmation of the sanctity of God, he made clear that God is a spirit. And that God is sovereign. And that God is holy. And that God is creator. And that God is a redeemer. And that God is the judge. As he is responding in this moment, it is a biblical world and life view that frames his entire response. Not only has he affirmed the sanctity of divine revelation, creation, general revelation, and God's word. Not only has he affirmed the sanctity of God and the attributes of God and the works of God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. He then affirms the sanctity of man made in the image of God and accountable to God. He brings them before the judgment seat of God, having revealed to them the God who came to bear their judgment for them and rose victorious. He brings to them the sanctity of the doctrine of divine providence. In him you live and move and have your being. He brings to them the sanctity of worship, the sanctity of mercy, the sanctity of justice, The sanctity of grace. He brings to them the sanctity of the last judgment, the final judgment, the divine judgment. He brings to them most of all the sanctity of the gospel that they can be saved and some are. And he brings to them the sanctity of common grace. Even your own poets say this. Even your own poets get it right from time to time. Your thinking and your being. Yes, he is affirming the doctrine of total depravity, but he makes clear in the, in the mercy and grace of God, total depravity hasn't become absolute depravity. They even now get some things right. Even as he upholds you because in him you live and move and have your being. So you and I walk away of this, from this, and we see what the Apostle Paul has done, and what do we see? From the Word of God, Paul deals in this situation. I'm just going to give him, don't get excited, I'm done, but you're going to have to write these seven things down. Here's number one. From the Word of God, dealing with this issue, he just showed you something. 
Everybody you meet is a worshiper. You don't have to, are they going to worship? The question is, what now? Is it true worship or false worship? They are going to worship. He said, you worship. All of you worship. Secondly, everybody you meet is religious. In fact, he says you're very religious. It may be the religion of sports. It may be the religion of money. It may be whatever. But there's something that claims religiously your affection, your adoration, and your allegiance. Thirdly, every one of you are believers. Everybody you meet, atheist, you cannot believe the intricacies of the faith system of an atheist. Everyone you meet is a worshiper. Everyone you meet is a believer. Everyone you meet is religious. Number four, everyone you meet, may I speak, (laughs) may I speak uh, Midwood, Chantilly, North Charlotte, Vocabulary. It ain't working. If it's working, why do you need a place to consider something new all the time? You just saying, tell me the old, old story. You want me to come up with another gospel tonight or to give you the one that we have? What they believe and what they worship and what they are religiously attached to, it ain't working. That's why they're having to get something new all the time. Number six, I'm sorry, number five, he has just demonstrated to you that God's word is true. Because he just, he diagnoses them from what God's word says. Number six, he just demonstrated for you that God's word is sufficient to equip you for everything and every moment. And number seven. He just demonstrated to you, just like the book of Genesis does, when you serve Jesus with a biblical world life view, motivated by a life love and living a lifestyle and proclaim the prominence and preeminence of Christ, there will always be a mixed response to you. Some believed, some mocked, and some said, we'd like to hear you again. You'll meet it all the time. Some believe, some mock in unbelief, and some start to get curious. Can I have a follow-up appointment with you? And we're always ready. This is why I'm doing the framing pieces from the book of Genesis. You just saw Paul use them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word tonight. Thank you for the privilege to serve you, love you, and follow you. I thank you for these who have gathered tonight. Would you keep them safe? I pray for those who are joining us in various other ways or will follow up. Would you please help them to walk with us in this journey of developing a biblical world and life view with the foundation and framing pieces from that are given to us in the book of Genesis with these creation mandates and sanctities. And then, Father, would you give us a love for Christ that is manifested within a hunger for your word and is seen by obedience, not because we think it earns our salvation, but because we want to love our Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.